Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm joined this evening by Mr. David Emmett of Moto Matters. And we are both here to discuss a quite enthralling Grand Prix of the Czech Republic at Brno. Uh, we are recording this in the, uh, well, the very brief time space that exists between both rounds. It's our first back-to-back MotoGP uh, round of the weekend, sorry, of the year. And, uh, well, we've just about had time to catch our breath, David, after a fantastic race in the Czech Republic. And, uh, we're kind of already getting ready to go again, uh, this weekend now that we're in Austria. Yeah, there is very little breathing room. We had a, we had a beautiful drive through the mountains yesterday and today, but that's, uh, that was the sum total of our sort of breathing space. It was literally breathing space because we actually went up quite high and slept somewhere where it wasn't 12 trillion degrees, which was, um, which was quite nice. Yeah, we're recording this just uh, about uh, 15 minutes drive from uh, the Red Bull Ring, Spielberg in Austria. Uh, David uh, is suitably dressed in his dirndl, as is a tradition for this round of the season. Steiner of beer in his hand. And uh, yeah, let's uh, get underway to discuss uh, what was, uh, well, let's say one of the best races of the year. We've had quite a few of those, to be honest, yeah. quite a few of those contenders. But uh, and, and also the closest top 10 finish um, uh, ever, according to Dr. Martin Reigns. Wow, there you go. I think eight or nine seconds. Uh, let's see. Andrea Iannone in 10th, 8.326 seconds between 1st and 10th, which is fairly amazing. Not so bad at all, yeah. And I think it was the 8th closest podium finish in Premier Class history as well. On top of that, it was a fantastic, uh, well, three-way duel it was for the win in the end. But at one point, I think we had about an 8 or 9 rider uh, fight for the race win overall. Yeah, 11. There were 11 riders in the front group after uh, like after still six or seven laps, which is, you know, two-thirds of the way into the race, which is just insane. And was this... Was this because of uh, was this because of the weather? Track conditions were a little cooler on the Sunday than they were for the rest of the weekend. Uh, what was the situation? Why were we seeing another uh, kind of Assen slash Qatar rerun where we had a big gaggle of riders at the front uh, waiting to buy their time for a final attack? It's complicated, of course. Uh, much the same reason as Assen, really. I mean, first of all, you've got the track. The track is. Uh, the track is wide and it features a lot of um, uh, places where riders, where corners come back. So, you know, it's left and then right or right and then left. Uh, that makes it really difficult to actually escape. Uh, riders can stick uh, can can stick together for a, uh, for a long time. There's lots of different lines through the corners. The circuit, it, you know, unless you are really terribly down on horsepower you're not going to do terror you know you're not going to go too wrong and um, uh, you can find a way to be faster Bruno then of course you know the Michelin tyres um, have brought everything together the technical regulations have brought everything together MotoGP is just a lot closer than it was um, uh, than it was nowadays and we had uh, again um, uh, what was it three days of three days of dry practice which made a big difference even though it was absolutely scorching hot i think we had uh track temperatures of um uh, the low 50 degree centigrade uh, during the year uh, during the weekend yeah now on uh, saturday we looked at uh, the free practice times that looked like mark marquez was in an, a class of his own basically uh head and shoulders above the rest but not even he uh, the man that leads the championship by a considerable margin had an answer for the two ducatis uh come sunday afternoon uh, why was that? Why were Ducati so superior when a day before it looked like both uh, Davizioso and Lorenzo were maybe a little bit in arrears of uh, the, the main Honda? 
I think the simple the, the, the simple answer is acceleration up a hill. The Ducati is simply the best bike with mechanical grip. It's all about mechanical grip. And that bike has absolutely tons of mechanical grip and so, and also tons of horsepower. So they were getting out of turn 10 at the bottom of the hill better, um, which meant they were getting up them, uh, getting up the hill better, um, carrying more speed up there. And that made them just impossible to, um, just impossible to overtake for, for, for Marquez. It was, it was really difficult for him to get anywhere near. On the Monday at the test afterwards, he was still sort of a bit bitter about that. He really wanted to win and he felt he could, he felt he could have been faster. But the trouble was every time, you know, they'd get out of the corner, then, then the Ducatis would just accelerate away from him. There was nothing, uh, nothing he could do. He could, he could never really get close enough to make a clean pass on them and so he just got stuck there and also i mean i wonder there was a there was a little bit of a spat between andrea dovicioso and um, and jorge lorenzo i shall let you explain about that but both of them were riding really really well lorenzo was riding exceptionally well um the ducati bought a new aerodynamic fairing which helped a little bit um gave him a little bit more of those sort of uh, anti-wheelie and uh, and also because it didn't it had sort of smaller side parts it's a little bit easier to go from uh, from side to side um, because the large sort of uh, side uh, ducts is what make the bike difficult to flick from one side to uh, to another. And Dovicioso was riding really well. Dovicioso got his tyre sorted. He, he understood his tyre. Uh, Lorenzo was riding outstandingly. And this was the first ever Ducati 1-2 at, uh, um, at Bruneau and the first win since Casey Stoner in 2007. So, um, yeah, they were just really difficult to beat in the first time in MotoGP history that uh, Ducati has scored uh, one-twos on more than one occasion in one single season. So I think that goes to show you that uh, the current Desmos Adichie machine is really probably the best Ducati there's ever been in MotoGP. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the most complete, absolutely. The, it's definitely the most complete motorcycle. And two of the best motorcycle races in the world, although uh, Jorge Lorenzo doesn't really uh, think that, as uh, or, or that's certainly what he told the Spanish press, right, Neil? <laughs> yeah, there was... Uh, tensions were heightened somewhat. I mean, if you have the chance to observe both Lorenzo and Davizioso up close during the race weekend. Um, one of the more fun uh, parts of, uh, of a MotoGP race weekend is going to Ducati Hospitality for the, the rider debriefs on a Friday or Saturday. And um, there's a very narrow line in which you can leave the stage where the riders give the debriefs and where the rider is, uh, is, is waiting for the debrief. And Usually, whenever Davizioso finishes, or maybe it's Lorenzo finishes, he has to walk up this narrow line and then pass. Uh, yeah, and it's literally sort of you know uh, two just two people wide sort of thing in a in a, in a typical feat of brilliant Italian organisation. Um, it takes sort of about ten minutes just to get journalists in and out of the uh, in and out of the seats to actually sit down and listen to the debriefs. But uh, they really you have to squeeze in and squeeze past. Uh, even slim MotoGP riders have to have to have to squeeze past each other, and there's a lot of not looking at each other. Yes, it, it does always appear very very tense, and uh, neither rider uh, ever even so much as acknowledges the other one. So and that's been happening pretty much all year. So it's clear that uh, both of the guys really don't like one another. Davizioso gave an interview to um, Spanish media outlet uh, Marca 
um, on the Wednesday, I think it was, before Bruno, in which he was quite critical of Lorenzo, saying Ducati basically hadn't hired him to only score two victories, criticised his technique, said that it didn't really fit with uh, Ducati's working method. Lorenzo was then asked about this on Thursday, and uh, he just unleashed a bit of a tirade against Davizioso. Um, said that uh, in the one season that the stars had aligned for the Italian, even then he could only finish second. And he said that, uh, well, he said that basically he's quite lucky because he doesn't have the talent of him, of Rossi, of Marquez, and he doesn't even have the talent of Simoncelli or Stoner, and they're not around anymore. So if they were around, he would probably only be like sixth or seventh most race weekends. So this was kind of the backdrop to uh, the kind of infighting going on Ducati during the during the weekend. And then it just so happened that both of those guys were, were fighting at the front, um, fighting at the front on Sunday. But um, it definitely gave them a little bit of extra motivation. It did give them a little bit of extra spice, yeah. But it, it was yeah, it was a fantastic ride in both parts because. Davizioso really, I mean, if you look at any of his race wins recently, um, especially with Ducati, uh, he has kind of sat in a group and watched the person in front, analysed them, and then decided to time his attack very late and normally doesn't really give the other guys time enough to respond. Whereas this was quite different because he went to the front quite early and then he was the one that was controlling the pace. And you could see that he was able to to up his pace by half a second a lap if needed or slow it and it was all based around conserving that rear tyre until the end of the race um, so that was really clever and then I thought what Lorenzo did was also great because he was at one point I think fighting up at the front he dropped back a little bit into the hands of Rossi and Crutchley yeah he was back around 5th or 6th place yeah you kind of thought that his race was maybe uh, well his chances of, of, yeah. of the win was deteriorating and then the final attack was really something to behold and he was the guy that set the fastest lap the last time around and basically outfought Marquez yeah absolutely I mean you know it, it was it looked like the Jorge Lorenzo of when he was racing um 250s not not the um uh, very precise very careful very clean rider of the uh, of the 800 era it was a it was a joy to see it was absolutely fantastic piece it was really was fantastic riding by Lorenzo but uh, we talked about the fact that this was like tyre conservation did you feel that I mean do you, because it was the, the, the race was basically about was just was was tyre strategy if you had tyre left at the end then you could uh, win the race but uh, do you feel a lot of people don't like the fact that this comes down to tyres we saw also on the last lap Dovicioso Lorenzo Marquez all set their fastest uh, their fastest race lap on the uh, on the final lap on the on, on lap 21 uh, does tire management make for boring racing is it is it falsifying racing is it um, is it the not a proper contest not a straight up contest uh, no i think that's absolute nonsense i mean how would you say that that was a boring race um Lorenzo was quite interesting after words when he was talking about the difference between Bridgestone and Michelin and he said with Bridgestones you could basically go like hell from the very first lap and that was your pace the entire time whereas his victory at Mugello and Catalunya he said there were pretty much most of his laps he knew he could go maybe four or five tenths faster but he knew that if he did that he would destroy the rear tire for the end and I think you know the Michelin so their tire allocation um, also, their rear tyre has been so key to a lot of the, the, the great races that we've seen across the last 18, uh, 24 months, um, which people are slightly hesitant to break away because they know if they do go too hard too soon, then they'll burn their rear tyre up. And, I mean, it doesn't 
you couldn't say that the uh I mean, basically, the quickest guys were still the guys fighting for the lead on the final lap at the end of that race. Nobody fluked into that. Yeah, exactly. And you look at Petrucci, he was the, I think he finished sixth. And he was the guy that was saying that he, I think, had to bridge a gap to the front within the first two or three laps because he was starting from a bit back, didn't have the best first lap. And in those three or four laps, he went really hard, put it all in. And he said that that basically cost him at the end. So was the fact that Davizioso was controlling the pace and saving his rear tire. That was absolutely pivotal to the the fact that he was able to, to be as fast as he was in the last lap. And it's part of racing. And it's part of racing, exactly. You have to use your mind. And we would say that, uh, well, Davizioso is as smart as they come. Yeah, it's, it's a mechanical sport. You have a piece of equipment and you have to use that piece of equipment. And that piece of equipment includes a number of components, including, you know, the engine, but also the tyres. The tyres are, are part of the equipment. The person who uses the package, as they say best, is the person who wins. And then the strategy, I mean, it, it you know, you get to see races which have a great deal of strategy again. I remember watching back in, I think it was 2011, uh, the Grand Prix in Barcelona, Casey Stoner won it. And essentially what you had was riders took off and by the first corner they had maintained their grid position and the race was just the, the riders maintaining position, gradually getting a little bit further in front of one another for the entire race. We didn't see any overtake. I remember I, I actually asked Casey Stoner why the race is boring once, and he said it's the Bridgestone tyres, because basically the position you qualify in is the position you're going to be finishing. You know, your qualifying pace is as fast as you can go on those tyres. The Bridgestone front was absolutely fantastic. It, it would always work, so you didn't have to uh, didn't have to worry about it. Bridgestone rear was rubbish, but uh, it gave a bit. It gave sufficient grip um, but it never wore out it was probably it was probably always too hard because also because Bridgestone the, the, the Bridgestone's thing was durability they were really looking to get as much durability out of the tyres as possible and so the tyres were probably all, all a little bit too hard and, and they were just very very difficult to um, uh, and nobody ever got 100% out of those tyres because there were still, you know, there was still tyre left. And so it just meant that it was just a simple rate of sort of, you know, fuel conservation and, and, and setup. Everyone would spend all the time working on setup, getting the setup perfect, and that's it. And also, I think we might have talked about this before, but uh, we saw Mark, we saw uh, Dovizioso on Friday. Neither of them really sort of sat down and went for a time. And because of this pre-qualifying we now have with, you know, FP1, FP2 and FP3, if you are confident enough in your own pace, then it, that basically gives you between 20 and 30 minutes extra practice time on Friday because you can spend your time working on setup rather than uh, giving up on setup after half an hour and, uh, you know, sticking a soft tire and, and trying to make sure you're straight through to Q2. And this is something that Marcus seems to have learned from Tavisio, who last year did this quite often. Um but yeah, for sure. I think before we move on to the next part of the show, it's worth pointing out um, Jorge Lorenzo's two-in-one move, I think with about four laps to go, overtaking Marquez at turn 13, then diving under Davizioso at turn 14. That was possibly the high point of the race for me. Yeah. It got mad cheer in the media centre whenever we were watching it. Everyone was clapping at that. And then his move in Marquez when on the final lap it appeared the Honda guy got the better of him uh, to 
dive under him at turn five yeah. uh, was such aggression. Yeah, that was the other thing, because Marquez also said that the Ducatis are braking really well as well. And so they're braking really well and they're accelerating really well, um, but they're slow in the middle of the corner. And that's just a huge, that's a huge advantage. It makes them very, very difficult to actually overtake. Yes, and next up Austria with lots of heavy braking and heavy accelerating. And it is difficult to see anyone other than uh, those two guys yeah. uh, emerging triumphant uh, this Sunday coming. Yeah, exactly. Given uh, given the uh, the fact that they've, you know, a Ducati has won every single race held there, which is two in MotoGP. But also it's worth saying that Mark came very close last year and the Honda has got more horsepower this year. Uh, and it accelerates a little bit better th- uh, this year. So, but the Ducati's better, and, yeah, yeah, and exactly. Lorenzo's riding better this year than he was yeah. last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. We shall, uh, we, we but, shall certainly. But see. I agree. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a, a, a repeat, basically, of Bruno with yeah. those with those three guys yeah. fighting at the front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, that uh, pretty much uh, brings us to a close. Uh, we have uh, discussed a little bit about the leading chase. And we're going to move on to, well, a man who had uh, very contrasting fortunes to the podium men at Bruno. And Maverick Pinal is quite possibly uh, one of the worst weekends of his career. Not only was he taken out of uh, the race in the first lap on Sunday by uh, erratic Stefan Bradl, um, basically the, the kind of the inter-team tensions uh, came to the fore on Saturday with... Um, well, with his crew chief, uh, Ramon Fercada, giving a quite explosive interview to Movie Star TV. Uh, this basically followed the news, or the confirmation that Maverick would not be working with Fercada in 2019. He was going to be replacing him with Esteban Garcia, who's currently in Bradley Smith's corner in KTM. There had been several hints that uh, Fercada and Vinales hadn't really been seeing eye to eye for some time now. Uh, about a year, yeah, and and he's hinted at this previously. Yeah, uh, was it was it Le Mans? Yeah, well, Le Mans. He was basically saying that uh, he, he was critical of of his team, but you know, I think halfway through last year, he was kind of saying that um, he wasn't being allowed to to go in the direction that he wanted to, and uh, and his team were were taken in places that he didn't necessarily want to go. Um, for kind of obviously. Uh, a wily campaigner, very experienced, uh, three times a world champion with Jorge Lorenzo. Um, another fiery character like Vinales himself. Absolutely. Uh, and he didn't necessarily take so well to hearing this news. He then give, after confirmation came through, after he was notified by Yamaha for kind of giving an interview to Movie Star TV on Friday, which was aired on Saturday, he said that his rider hadn't notified him that uh, they wouldn't be working together anymore. Um, he actually cast doubt on whether they would finish the season together. And then FP3, it all went a bit tits up. And uh, yeah, wrong strategy pushed Maverick outside of the top 10. He came back into the garage afterwards and David, you were down a pit lane at that time. Uh, what did you see? Well, I didn't see him actually come back in, but I did see him sit down in his uh, in his chair, put his sunglasses on and stare at terminally at the screen he didn't say a word to Forcada uh, apparently the uh, the problem was that Vinales wanted to, to go out and take two soft tyres uh, try two runs on two soft tyres at um, uh, at the end of FP3 to make sure that he goes through to Q2 what happened was the uh, Forcada didn't want to do that uh, Forcada said no no we'll go out with one set of uh, just just to you know 
a run on on one set of soft tyres and you'll be fine um, because that's what Valentino Rossi's going to do. Valentino Rossi changed his mind, went out on a set of soft tyres, came back in, put in another soft tyre and uh, banged in a pretty quick time to um, uh, to make sure that he, that he was straight through to Q2. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maverick Vinales didn't. He fell by a few hundredths of a second, I think. Um, he finished in 13th. Uh, yes, in 13th. Um, no, 11th. 11th, yes. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, um, he was just outside the top 10. That was what upset him. They hadn't followed his strategy. He wanted to use a particular strategy. They hadn't followed it, and he, that left him outside of um, Q2. He got through from Q1 into Q2, but still got a fair, you know, it didn't really improve. Uh, started 11th, 12th. Yeah, there you go. Didn't really start uh, anywhere near the front. And because he was at the back of grid, he was ripe to be skittled by uh, an over-enthusiastic Stefan Bradl, desperately trying to uh, get a MotoGP ride um, uh, for 2000, uh, for 2019. So bad news, bad news all round and a bad, a bad weekend all round. Who is for fault in this? I mean, do we point the finger of blame at Vinales, uh, for Cada? At Yamaha, how they managed the situation. I mean, basically, we weren't allowed. We went to Mavericks debrief on Saturday evening. We were informed straight away from uh, the press people at Yamaha that uh, we could not ask any questions about uh, affairs that were not on track related. Um, Maverick emerged from Lynn Jarvis's office after a lengthy discussion, it seemed, um, what appeared to be a bit of a, a dressing down and telling off. And, and then we were allowed to just poke him and, and pry about uh, what had happened in FP3, FP4, F, and Q1, Q2. Um, but yeah, I mean, who, who who's at fault here? Why, why is this kind of turned into a big storm? It's hard to say. I mean, Maverick is incredibly headstrong and incredibly stubborn and wants to do it his own way. He has been complaining probably since about his third race on the Yamaha, that Forcada won't do things the way that he wants. He won't set the bike up the way that he wants um, because Forcada knows the, the the Yamaha better than Vinales, but Vinales wants, you know, sort of stiffer springs. He wants lots of, uh, he wants lots of different changes to it to suit his riding style. And so there's been a breakdown of, I think there was a breakdown of trust very, very early. They're both really, really strong characters. Fulcada is also incredibly headstrong. Um, that was the reason why they bought Wilco Zielenberg in after Jorge Lorenzo's first year with Fulcada. So, you know, to act as a middleman to sort of, you know, calm things down a little bit to, to, to act as the voice of reason to, to point things out. That hasn't been as successful with, uh, with Vinales. Vinales also seems less, I would say receptive. He doesn't sound. He he's not as he doesn't seem to be as interested in actually doing what um, in listening to advice and listening to what other people have to say. That I think is 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 part of the problem. In this case, basically, the relationship is completely broken down. So there's no there's not even any point trying to point to uh, trying to point fingers at who is to blame. It's it's way beyond that. Um, the, the 
biggest issue really is the way that it's been handled within uh, within Yamaha. It's been sort of ignored and hoped that it would go away. And uh, well, yeah, it's a bit like um, having a, an infected wound. If you leave an infected wound and, uh, and and hope that it'll just get better of its own accord, what ends uh, what what tends to happen is they end up cutting bits off of you because um, uh, because the infection has spread throughout the rest of your body. So yeah, it's it's just a it's, it's just an unfortunate situation and the relationship between crew chief and rider is the the single most important relationship in in all of motorcycle racing probably all in in all of racing in all forms so how is it going to go from here um i honestly don't know i can't see well i mean what I can see happening is um, there will be a very unsuccessful second half of the uh, of the 2018 season, and um, where the two will simply put up with with each other and try and work together while spending as little time as possible together, um, and that's going to be and, and then that will be it. And then I think Maverick is thinking more about 2019 than he, than, than he is about 2018. Also because the bike still has too many problems. I mean, this was uh, the 20th consecutive race for Yamaha without a victory. The longest streak since 98, not, uh, 97, yeah, 97, 98. There you go. Um, the bike has, you know, the, the, the bike, the bike is actually, Valentina Rossi said, you know, it is, it's a fantastic chassis. The chassis is absolutely, absolutely great. It's just that there is this problem with acceleration, which is causing them huge, uh, huge issues. Yeah, issues with tire degradation. Yeah, exactly, especially in the last few laps. And you saw that also during the race. You know, Rossi was right at the front for a long while, and then you know, five to go, he was he was basically going backwards. Does Vinales need to? calm down a bit does he need to to take a step back to Vinales needs to grow up most of all Maverick Vinales is so um, so desperate to win a championship he's I mean uh, David Brivio I interviewed David Brivio a couple of years a year or so ago and Brivio told me um, that uh, in Vinales first MotoGP race on the Suzuki uh, Maverick finished fifth he came in and he was crying uh, he was crying because he hadn't won the race. He'd, ex- he'd expected to win them. Uh, he'd expected to win the race, and that isn't the way that MotoGP works. That isn't the way that unless you are Mark Marquez and, and also happen to come straight into probably the best team on the grid uh, with a very long and established uh, uh, experience, and also you know 2013 that bike was in really really good shape. It probably was the best bike on the grid. Um, then you can come in and start winning straight away. But you know Vinales expected to win from the off yeah. and he, he he hasn't he has no sense of perspective and until he gets a sense of perspective um he can't think long term plan long term um uh, sacrifice things for the next few races in the hope of getting uh, getting something sort of in the future and that seems to be the, the big problem uh, certainly as th- that's my impression of him mm. also he he's dedicated his life to racing when you see his instagram feed it's um monastic shall we say it doesn't look like he has a, a whole heap of fun, uh, unless your idea of fun is, you know, spending three hours in the gym. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to be careful when stating this because back in 2016, when he was having that great year with Suzuki, you looked at that drive and you thought that was a real strong point. Whereas now it seems that 
It is having that drive is really you, you don't succeed without that drive. Um, but it has to be there's sort of an optimum point. It's a bit like um, it's a it's a bit like a Ducati GP8. Um, there is an there's a peak of perfection where you, you have exactly the right amount of drive. But if you go over that a little bit, um, you're completely. It's easy to get lost because the the, the drive when things going well, it really helps. Vinales be motivated and be concentrated and be focused and do everything that needs to be done to win. But when things are going wrong, um, then he tries to, you know, keep pushing just as hard and that goes, that, that seems to go really, really badly. Um, sometimes you have to step back a little, adjust your expectations, um, uh, and work for the long term. You see this with, you see, with, I mean, obviously Rossi is his teammate, Valentino Rossi, so experienced, but you see Rossi, you carefully using, uh, public pressure, only sometimes making very strong statements towards Yamaha saying, basically, get your act together. Uh, and by doing that, 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 that's a lot more powerful than what, uh, than what Villalas is doing and is actually helping, um, uh, you know, forcing Yamaha to react and to actually do something about it. I feel with Vinales, it seems a wee bit rich that so much criticism is directed towards Yamaha when it seems this year um, a lot of his difficulties stem from his own issues. I mean, you don't really see Rossi or even Johan Zarco to an extent um, having so many issues in the early laps of a race with a full fuel tank. No, 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 no absolutely. Uh, Manuel Pessino had a fantastic uh, piece uh, recently. Um, uh, com. You can find it. If you follow Pessino GP on, on Twitter, you go through his timeline, you should be able to find it about the number of places lost, um, uh, in the opening laps. And, uh, Ma- Maverick Villanales is the world champion at going backwards in the opening lap. Yeah. Only Tito Rabat has lost more positions, uh, from the, from the start line to the first corner than Vinales, if you look at the first nine races yeah. of this year. So also there's that. That is something that he can work on. Yeah. That, that's yeah. not something to do with the bike because Rossi and uh, Zarco, Siren, they don't have the same issues with the MIM1. So, um, and yet they, you know, Valentino Rossi still hasn't won a race. So yeah. there is something, sure. the bike has defects. Um, uh, but Vinales also has defects and the two together is, you know, I mean, you, you saw the first, his first two races on the bike. You saw, um, what he can do when everything is right. But now we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, what you can do when everything is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That decision to sign, uh, two extra years, uh, to stay with Yamaha. Back in January. Back in January seems more puzzling and perplexing by the race weekend. Yeah. Uh, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, Maverick Vinales, a bit of a weekend to forget. Okay. So the championship, David Mark has a 49 point advantage. Um, he was pretty pissed off. I think it's fair to say in the post race press conference uh, on Sunday yeah. afternoon, he didn't look best pleased with the fact that he had lost out in such a close battle with the Chicadis. Yet he extended his championship lead from 46 to 49 points and things are looking pretty rosy for him at the top. Perhaps what's of greater interest, though, is uh, just behind with uh, with the Ducatis, with Davizioso now stepping up to third. And, uh, yeah, Valentino Rossi making some comments that uh, that is, well, his main concern now in the championship is the strength of Davizioso and Lorenzo, uh, both of whom have designs uh, on his 
current position. The tale of the championship, the story of this championship is the fact that uh, Mark Marcus doesn't have a clear number two. Once again, you saw Mark settling is a big word. Um, I think if it had been Rossi ahead of him, um, then he might have tried harder to get past the, to get past him. Um, he was very much looking behind him. You saw when Rossi came into the lead, Mark uh, Marquez immediately chased him, immediately went after him. When Rossi was behind him, then he was uh, then he let up a little bit, was a little bit um, uh, you know a little bit less concerned. But really, honestly, you know, Marquez. To me, Marcus is managing the championship perfectly because despite the fact that he lost, he only came third, his worst finish to a MotoGP race this year, he still extended his lead in the championship because the, his championship rivals are taking, uh, are taking points off each other. And, uh, you know, Andrea Dovizioso may well have, um, I think he went up to third in the championship. He, he's still a long way behind. 68 points, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. But yeah, I mean, 68 points, that's, that's a huge gap. Um, and the chances of closing 68 gap, and it's not impossible. You know, if Mark falls off once, then he'll be a little bit closer. If he falls off twice, and then we have a new championship, or you know, falls off DNF, whatever. The chances of there being two more DNFs before the end of the year seems pretty, con- especially considering he's already had three. That seems or three no scores. That seems it seems to be pretty slim to me. So. Um, Marcus is now totally in championship mode. I think he would even be willing to not win any more races as long as he wins the title, because that's the most important thing to him. Uh, who is his biggest challenger in your eyes? Is it Rossi second or is it uh, Fabrizio? Exactly. Is it Lorenzo? There isn't a, a, a biggest challenger. It really it depends on the track. It depends on the weekend. Um, depends on how things going. It's you know it is between you know uh, Rossi, Dovi. Lorenzo, Zarco, um, even Vinales almost. Um, the, the reason that Marquez has such a huge lead in the championship is because um, the rest of the the people fighting him are all are all sort of squabbling. So uh, it reminds me a little bit of the Tour de France, to use a an analogy. The um, uh, the Sky team is so incredibly strong, also because uh, the other teams. Are all fighting each other instead of um, instead of ganging up against uh, against Guy. I don't think it would be possible for everyone to to gang up on Mark Marquez somehow, because um, they all have their own interests. So yeah, basically this is about this is just about mani- uh, about managing the championship and, and strategy. And we've seen through the years that uh, that Marquez and especially his team are brilliant at strategy. So what you're saying essentially is that at the age of 25, he's going to be a seven-time world champion. The five of those coming in the premier class, quite the unprecedented numbers for someone of his age. Uh, that is pretty much what I'm saying. Uh, then again, I'm also saying I find it difficult to see who's going to beat him next year. Unless Yamaha come with a really much better engine and much better electronics, then it's going to be hard to stop him. Um, you know, Ducati would have to improve, really radically improve their bike as well. Uh, Lorenzo would really have to take to the Honda like a duck to water. I think our best hope for, for, for 2019 is that, uh, is that Lorenzo gets on really well with the Honda and can start beating Marquez regularly because then we might have more riders in, a, in the championship. But right now, Mark Marquez is the best rider in the world at the moment. And, um, there isn't anyone who can match him consistently. 
There are lots of riders who can beat him on the day, which is great, makes for fantastic racing, but no one can beat him week in, week out, or finish ahead of him week in, week out. Mm. I just keep looking back to Davizioso's crash at Jerez that could have oh, been avoided, yeah. and then I, I keep looking back to his crash at Le Mans, which could have been easily avoided as well. And you think there's 45 points that Davizioso could have scored, and with those 45 points, he would be within one race win of Marquez and then going into this second half of the championship which really does seem to favour well it features a lot of tracks yeah, but, yeah, but who do you fancy who do you think is better under pressure I mean you know if you've got uh, well, we'd have, a, we'd have a, a close championship fight at least we would have a close champion well we'd have a close championship fight but it would be a bit like what they used to say about playing Germany at football football is a game of uh, of 90 minutes and in the end Germany wins on penalties this would be um, you know uh, 19 races championship would be really close but in the end Mark Marquez was win by an indeterminate number of points the unfortunate thing at the moment is that um, Marquez is going to wrap it up so incredibly early you know it's probably going to be Thailand maybe Mategi well, yeah, no, Thailand is early. It's going to be Mategi or Philip Island that he's going to uh, won the championship at the rate that he's going, unless something dramatic happens. Cycling and football analogies all in one segment. And I don't even like football. What, could you, <laughs> what more could you want in a podcast? Uh, yes, okay, so the championship, uh, well, uh, I think we, we knew that before the summer break. Marquez is to lose, for sure. Uh, looking at... Um, well, a few news segments. We obviously had the, uh, the post race test, uh, Bruno on the Monday. Um, we saw some interesting things there. Mark Marquez had four uh, bikes in his Repsol Honda garage. He was also the quickest man off the day. Um, we saw Ducati's pretty strong. Uh, Johan Zarco finished second. Um, Valentino Rossi had a new, sh- um, fairing to test. Yeah. Didn't quite have the updates that he, uh, he had hoped for. We expected. I think that they did have some electronic updates and a few bits and pieces on the chassis, which uh, should help in the long term. But again, it's the fantastic thing about motorcycles is there isn't a single solution. Uh, it's a uh, it's an in- incredibly complicated jigsaw puzzle, and you have to put all of the pieces together in the uh, in the right way to get the best out of it. And so, yeah, uh, the, the impression I got was that Yamaha have found some pieces. Uh, which they think they can put in there, but they have to figure out the best way to do that. That means that it's not going to be here, but you'd have to say Silverstone, that's got to be a good Yamaha track. You would think that um, they would be trying to get sort of all of the pieces in place. The, the Japanese engineers will be sitting there um, doing their, trying to figure it all out and put it to put it together there so that they've got something for Silverstone so that they can prevent that 20-second sort of straight race loss. Yes, um, Marquez, I think, had an early 2019 prototype as well as, well, another um, sort of new bike with the 2018 engine um, aimed at uh, giving him a little bit more uh, braking prowess, which he says he's lost a little bit with this bike. He said, obviously, the, the engine's stronger, um, the acceleration's better, electronics are better than what happened last year, but he has complained a little bit um, at some race weekends this year that it's just not quite as good on the front end um as previous models um it can't be as fierce with the front brake um also said he'd been trying to work out really get to the bottom of the fact basically the honda riders well him and crutch will always have to use the hardest available yeah. front tire uh whereas jacati sometimes can use soft yamas can kind of vary between uh, the three uh front compounds in the allocation um it seems that you know honda have really done 
their homework, not just with regards to 19, but also to the, the last, what, nine races this year as well? Yes, exactly. I mean, you have to worry about what they'll be bringing to the last nine races. But it, yeah, they seem to have done their homework. They've got lots of them. Uh, uh, they've got a lot of things in place. They seem, uh, it, as I understand it, also part of the problem is also they've tried to improve the, the corner speed um, uh, on the uh, on the Honda. But the trouble is doing that, to do that, you have to sacrifice a little bit of braking. And the braking was where they were just absolutely, you know, the, the best bike on the grid, really. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. Um, Ducati, Ducati, they were go back to backing their chassis and decided to go in two different directions as usual. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because, well, obviously they're two guys, uh, guys with quite varying styles. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the the results of their tests were, were quite different, really. Ducati have had a new chassis since I think uh, Assen and Dovizioso has been using it. Um, uh, Dovizioso finally uh, uh, had a proper back to back of the um, uh, of the chassis and decided that he doesn't like it and he's going back to the previous one. Uh, Lorenzo hasn't been using the new uh, chassis; he's been sticking with the old one. He also had a back-to-back of the chassis and decided that he actually likes the new one. So they will be um, slightly different. The new chassis is a little bit more flexible; it allows it a little bit turning in the corner. It's a little bit better in the corner. The old chassis is a little bit more stable in braking, and and especially towards the end of the race, uh, braking and acceleration, especially towards the end of the race, that's really important. Suzuki had lots and had sort of various bits and bobs they also had the new bike there quinterly raced and uh rinse and ian only tried yeah a few new bits on the suzuki as well they weren't really willing to give too much away no um but yeah rinse looking for a bit of extra traction i think which is where he was struggling through the race weekend um and uh, yeah ktm obviously they were sort of down to bare bones staff after paulus bargaro's injury um Luca Calio is also still injured from the crash at Saxon Ring. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, Bradley Smith, they had sort of plans to, to race, um, the bike that Calio has been racing during his wildcard appearances through this year, which is something like a kind of 2018-19 hybrid. With the new engine, which um, turns backwards hmm. uh, with, with a counter-rotating crankshaft, and what that does is it makes the bike, it gives you a little bit of anti-wheelie, and it also makes the bike easier to go through the corners because the gyroscopic forces of, of the crankshaft counteract the gyroscopic forces of the wheels, and so um, it's a, uh, it, the bike's a little bit less stable. It'll, it'll flick from side to side uh, more easily. Um, but it didn't work out. They uh, had technical issues. I think four in, in, in the free practices. They had four. Yeah, well, they weren't using that bike at all during uh, during uh, the Bruno race weekend. They had intentions to try to test it on the Monday, mm. but uh, because of Paul's injury, uh, I think they decided against it. Yeah. And uh, Bradley will just race uh, what he's been racing. Yeah, uh, with maybe a few new parts uh, this weekend. Um, okay, so that but is they did try. Bradley used the new engine, but only during practice. What Calio has been using, though. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well, yes, yes. The one which Calio used at Jerez is the one. Really? It's the same engine that Calio. Yes. If you look on the engine list, all of a sudden, 
Bradley Smith takes two new engines. And the only time that you take two new engines mm. is when you want to have two identical engines and the, uh, the engine has changed. So, uh, yeah, no, they definitely use that engine, but it still has issues. And because it still has issues, it's still not completely tested. It's a big job getting the engine turned the other direction. Mm. Um, it has effects all the way through the, uh, the, through the machine. Um, uh, one of the things, speaking of the test, one of the big things, uh, pieces of news to come out was, I think, the... Uh, test teams, all of the changes to the test teams. Yamaha confirmed that they're going to have a European test team. Yes, Yamaha confirmed that. That's something that Rossi's been pushing for quite some time. Um, we've seen Suzuki adopt this approach basically uh, this year with uh, Sylvain Gintoli as basically a full-time test rider. Uh, with Tom O'Kane as his crew chief and that's been paying real dividends. We've seen it with Honda also with uh, Steph Bradle um, and the work that he's been doing and it seems that Yamaha's going to follow suit um, which basically means that uh, all of the factories, bar Aprilia, uh, have confirmed that they will have a testing for next year. And even Aprilia, I think, are going to do their utmost to ensure that they can have a, a strong kind of MotoGP-level rider um, to to test uh, away from the track. Yeah, and, and the uh, names of riders that are interesting being linked to all of these test yeah, yeah. roles. Yeah, it seems uh, Jonas Folger is uh, high on their wish list. Um, also Aprilia well obviously they've made no secret of wanting Scott Redding um, KTM we heard over the weekend or well, confirmation that they're basically they've been chasing Danny Pedrosa now for about two months I heard that they basically uh, offered double what Honda have um, to make him their test rider uh, Honda have made an offer also to make Pedrosa their test rider for 2019 yeah um, I mean that's proper luxury that's a really yeah. luxury one of the th- results of all of this cost cutting you've got spec electronics you've got spec tires there's limited spending on um, suspension parts for example the budget is there the budget is the budget and teams are going to or factories are going to spend whatever budget they can get out of their uh, out of their boards and just because rules have changed to make racing cheaper that doesn't mean that the uh, racing department won't spend any less money so they will just spend it on something else and now what they're spending it on is um uh, is test riders and in a sport where every the last detail counts that's where it's going yeah and also test riders if you have a, a full European-based testing that can take quite a lot of the workload off the existing squad. Alicia Sparger was talking about this quite a lot um, this year. He said that basically, um, rather than his guys going directly from the Italian Grand Prix to go and test for three days in in the Grand Prix of Catalonia um, and then go to a race weekend basically with, I don't know, two or three days at home in between, uh, a testing team can basically do that, can pick up those responsibilities and, you know, gives everyone a bit more time away from the track to, to breathe and disconnect. Um, because in the first part of the year, it's it's relentless, really, the, the schedule, you know, from, yeah, uh, well, from we, February all the way through to the middle of July. And even this year, there hasn't been a summer break. Um, yes, it's, uh, it's also, I think, about managing your staff and making sure that they're still refreshed and fully motivated coming to each race weekend, taking the workload off and making sure that it's uh, there's a decent balance there as well. Yeah, and if it's tough, this year it's going to be even worse next year because there's talk of there being 20 races. Yes, exactly. We're apparently going to Mexico. That is going to be on the provisional calendar uh, next year, the same circuit that Formula One uses. Um, uh, let's not beat about the bush. It's a horrible looking track yeah. uh, and one that really doesn't look 
as though it's fit to host uh, motorcycle racing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if they can race it, uh, if they can race at that circuit, we can race at Spa as well, um, or Monaco. Um, or, or Monaco. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it looked or more like West. Ma- yeah. it looked like Macau. Yeah, yes, barriers uh, all the way around, close barriers. Um, yeah, it, it looks like uh, Montreal. You know, the the street circuit, the, the yeah, Formula One. I think that's is yeah. there. Yeah, um, I think that's a good comparison. So I think it's going to be massive amounts of work if they want to uh, they want to create a circuit. And this is this is apparently this is going to be in the calendar for April next year. So we've got essentially nine months to to yeah. I, I was told to that it, that track. I was told that um, it was going to be before uh, the week before Austin. So that's not even nine months. That what so that would be April sometime. That's what eight months from now. Uh, Optimistic. And- optimistic yes yes optimistic in um, I think calling it optimistic is optimistic it would really need a completely different design I think Chicho Lorenzo Jorge's dad who's quite uh, outspoken on Twitter called it suicide Valentino Rossi was not enthusiastic I think yes him and about every other uh, mortal being uh, in the paddock uh, whenever the news was put to them Um, yes so moving on Winners and losers from last weekend, David. We uh, will end the show with this section. Uh, we have one winner apiece, and yep. we'll uh, we'll discuss who we think they are, and then one loser also um, from last weekend. I will start with you, age before beauty, as they say. <laughs> uh, you can go first to this. Uh, who was your big winner from uh, last weekend? Well, I mean, you have to say it's Ducati. You have to say that Ducati are the big winners because Ducati, uh, you know, they come away from this. They haven't won it since 2007. They've always had difficulties. They get a one-two. They prove that their bike is really a lot better. Davicioso is much he made a big step in the championship, also a big step in motivation and um, and the team. They, they, they really celebrated this victory, this one too. Lorenzo uh, proves that um, uh, he can be competitive at you know, tracks where he struggled before. Ducati, again, proved that they are competitive at tracks where they struggle. It's going to be really interesting to see how the Ducati goes at, um, at Phillip Island because, again, that's a track where they've just had just an awful time and it's Phillip Island is mu- or Bruneau is much more like Phillip Island than, um, let's say, you know, Mategi or Austria, uh, places where, where they've won. So, yeah, it's, this was just a fantastic week for where weekend for Ducati and they really, they, it was, Absolute proof that they are um, on the right path. Yes, exactly. And it's not just, uh, if you look at Honda, the people that are making the Honda go faster than Crutchlow and Marquez, they have quite a specific style and way of riding that bike. Um, whereas, obviously, Lorenzo and Davizioso have two very, very contrasting styles. And the fact that both of them were as close at the front of the race at the end uh, proves that, uh, well, that is a pretty rounded bike in which uh, you don't have to ride it in one specific way to be to be quick. Yeah, and Petrucci was right there at the front for a lot of the time until this tire went off as well. So, you know, that's three riders. The three riders on the GP18, all at the front, all competitive. You know, the bike is good. Um, uh, they're in good shape for the future. Yeah, it's difficult to argue with Ducati, but if it makes you feel any better, uh, my winner is Italian teams as well. I'm going to go for uh, Moto2 uh, starlet Luca Marini. Uh, who I think enjoyed his best race uh, of his career uh, on Sunday. And wonderful, wonderful Moto2 race. Uh, the closest 
top 10 uh, in the intermediate class history um, in a full-length race. Um, it really was a stunner, I think. Mattia Piscini was five seconds back off the race winner at the checkered flag. He was 10th. Um, <laughs> but Marini and Miguel Oliveira really went uh, hammer and tong. Yeah. At, uh, added at the front of that fight uh, last lap. It was a great four-way scrap, but Marini... Um, really suffered from shoulder injuries uh, in the last two years had a bad crash I think at one point last year injured his left shoulder it is dislocated several times since then he had two dislocations I think in just over a week uh, in May this year and that was really holding him back um, but we saw Germany just how strong he could be and um, yeah the don't think we've ever seen Luca ride as aggressively as he did, where he was just uh, putting move after move on Oliveira and uh, Valentino Rossi said after the race that you know Oliveira has done about you know twenty five of these races in his career. Um, you know, such is his experience. Whereas Luca, this is kind of a new new thing for him. Um, great moves the final part of the last lap and the fact that he even tried to go around the outside of Oliver at the last corner you know big big respect for that and he just missed out by uh, I'm not sure how much it was but uh, very very small margin indeed I added up the, the difference in victory in all three classes and it was I think it was less than four tenths I think it was a tiny amount you know there was there was just you know a tenth or two between um, between winners in all three classes it was a fantastic race by Marini I'm going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about here I knew he was going to lose at the bottom of the hill because he tried he Oliveira took the wide line around the bottom of, um, of, of turn 10 he had better drive up the hill and drive up the hill especially in Moto 2 where everyone has the same horsepower that's the key to getting around uh, Bruno fast but Marini rode absolutely brilliantly it's also great to see Moto2 being being sort of thrilling and exciting uh, an exciting race again yeah um, back to 2011 yeah exactly it's back to the way to, it used to be you know Luca Marini everyone talks about Marini being uh, Valentino Rossi's brother and that seems to be an unfair it's unfair to put that kind of pressure on him Luca Marini is a Good racer, a really, really good racer in his own right. He's had a lot of, um, he's had a few setbacks. He's been in the wrong team a couple of times. Things have not quite gone the right way. He earned his own respect, Luca Marini's respect in that race, uh, in that race at Bruno on, on Sunday. And yeah, that was, uh, that was very impressive. Yeah, it certainly shows that the Sky VR46 Moto2 team will be in capable hands even after Paco Bagnaia yeah. jumps up to MotoGP in 2019. Um, so Marini gets my nod of approval. Surely a first Grand Prix win isn't far away for him. Um, Kate, well, losers. Losers. Uh, for me... Other than us. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yes, yes. <laughs> Beck is my theme song. Anyway, my loser, uh, I think it has to be Yamaha and not so much Yamaha, uh, the factory as Yamaha, their whole PR situation, their handling of, um, of the Vinyala situation was exactly the wrong strategy. I think also it's a mistake. When Valentino Rossi split with Jeremy Burgess, he did it exactly right. He did it the way that you're supposed to do it. Uh, he went round to see, um, or he invited Burgess into his motorhome and told him himself. I mean, he did it, and he was very, very angry by at the fact that this news had got out. 
you know, had been leaked by one of his inner circle previously uh, because he wanted to tell him himself. You know, Vinales didn't didn't tell Forcada if I was in charge of Yamaha, which thank God I'm not, because they'd be doing an awful lot worse. Uh, but if I was in charge of Yamaha, I would have told Vinales, okay, what a new crew chief. Uh, go and tell Forcada that you won't be having him next year. And the crisis PR is about transparency about openness what they've tried to do is shut everyone down um uh, shut down any discussion of it all that's meant is that we've all gone away and wrote our own stories based on it and it's probably generated twice the uh, uh, twice the coverage they would have had if they'd have been uh, open and honest about it and probably open and honest about it a lot earlier in the year as well yeah yeah it certainly wasn't a good look uh, when they tried to uh, point attention away from, uh, well, clearly some uh, turmoil uh, behind yeah. the scenes there in the movie star Yamaha camp. Um, yeah, again, difficult to argue with that, but for the sake of, uh, well, for the sake of argument, uh, I'm going to go with KTM just because uh, the consequences of this weekend have really, well, messed up uh, in part their home Grand Prix in Austria, the really important um probably the most important date on KTM's calendar of uh, 2018 in certainly terms of MotoGP um, and it was just a, it was a rotten Sunday wasn't it because uh, Paul Espargaro uh, crashed uh, in morning warm-up turn three broke his left collarbone had a pretty heavy impact and um, banged himself up quite badly um, then in the race Bradley Smith was caught out at that same spot on the first lap by Stefan Bradl uh, obviously took Mark Maverick Vinales down as well um, so not just was the fact that the, you know the riders didn't score any points and didn't finish the race um, but uh, basically they're going to uh, Spielberg um, with just Bradley Smith as uh, as the one representative they had intended to bring Michael there as a test rider um, so yes it's not really not really good. Mike Leitner said it was probably the worst day of uh, KTM's MotoGP project since it started back in, you know, 2015 when they were putting it all together. Um, and yeah, it's 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 got really it's got pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would argue with there is that uh, it wasn't so much the worst weekend because you have to include the Saxon ring with Mick Calio um, just completely wrecking his knee, and which is putting him out for at least six months so it's hard to argue ktm did have a disastrous weekend also bradley smith gets the new engine tries it um has technical problems and is forced to withdraw it and race with the old engine they won't be able to race it at, uh, in austria at their home grand prix they've had a lot of setbacks and and this was definitely uh, this was definitely the worst weekend of the uh, uh, of the project so far so I think that uh, that pretty much brings our, our discussion on Bruno to an end, David. I think there is not much more to say. No worries. And well, considering the Red Bull ring is just around the corner. Uh, <laughs> literally. Th- yes, exactly. <laughs> literally. And also that things kick off tomorrow. We're recording here on Wednesday night. Um, our duties at the track will k- kick off tomorrow. Means that we'll be back with another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast within uh, a week hopefully of uh, of this show being put out i'd like to thank you mr david emmett for appearing on the show once again and we'd both like to thank you listener for taking the time out to listen to the show uh, always greatly appreciated and uh, well it's probably around about this time that i should inform you that uh, you should be following us on twitter that is at Paddock Pass Pod. You should be following us on Facebook as well. That's facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And 
you are listening to our show via one of Apple's uh, podcast streaming devices, uh, if you could leave us a little message, a little review, that would greatly help other listeners find our show and help spread the love and the word of the Paddock Pass podcast around the world, which, uh, well, let's face it, is a good thing in these uh, times of turmoil and uncertainty. So I'd like to say thank you once again uh, for listening, and we'll be back with another episode very soon indeed. Oh, yeah. All right, Exy. Anything to say to our listeners?